buttoned that up. I'm very relaxed, as you can tell. I'm stretching. Probably just if we're going to start now, let's kick it off. Um, so, Keith Banks, is that your real name, or are you currently undercover now, mate? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's been a long time since then, mate. No, that's my real name, yeah. mate. Um, so we spoke to a couple of lads uh, prior to the show, and you're actually a little bit of a legend in the army community as well. People have heard of Keith Banks before, mate. So there you go. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's that's nice to know, mate. But a bit um, a bit embarrassing. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that's very cool. Uh, any areas in particular? Or, or, or should I say this? Was I known for my drinking prowess? Mate, I think that's got to have to be half of it. Because um, everyone everyone <laughs> in the army, pre, pre what smartphones were, um, books, and, and so everyone reads every book known to man and every podcast every after that. So it's picking up. Yeah, cool. No, that's cool. So you were on a cover copper in... The glory days of this, or the or the or the Wild West in the 70, 70s, 80s? Uh, the eighties, mate. I started undercover in uh, March nineteen eighty, when um. So. Yeah, I was a baby, mate. I volunteered for it when I think I'd um I'd not even turned twenty two, so March nineteen eighty. Yeah, I was a couple of months shy of twenty two, and um, I just volunteered for it because I uh, um. It, as cliche as it sounds, you know, I wanted to save the world. I wanted to be a super cop. I thought that was the way to do something really noble, you know, fight the drug trade and all of that stuff that people should have ideals about. Um, didn't realise what it was all about, and I didn't realise how, how much. Didn't realise how much then it would change me within a couple of years. And more importantly, a lot of my mates, a lot of my mates were fucked up um, as a result. Yeah, I read, I read in there that you guys were chosen because you didn't look anything like cops. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty severe uh, selection process, really. <laughs> if you didn't look like a cop, you're in. Um, <laughs> and and in those days, you know, cops were like six foot plus, and and uh, and I'll be as nice as I can. Not a lot of them had a great deal of education, so you know, if you didn't fit the mould um, and you volunteered for for UC work, then as long as they realised that you weren't an out and out raving lunatic, um, you know, you were probably in. That came later. Because they, they had the same philosophy for the, uh, when they, I could be talking absolute shit, but the, uh, when they started Z Force and, and the special forces in, yeah. uh, for Vietnam, you couldn't be over a certain height. You had to look like a run of the mill average sort of guy. Otherwise, like, no, you don't, you, we can't put you in, in sort of different roles. Well, I mean, when I, I did some work, um, I did some work in the tactical field later in my career and I went to Swanbourne, um, and did a, a CT instructors course over there and I was struck by the fact that most of the guys in the regiment were probably my size or shorter and I'm, I, 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 I'm lucky to top out at about 174 centimeters and you know it makes sense when you're going through a toilet window with all your gear on that you don't want to be a Ben Robert Smith you know or an Arnold Schwarzenegger I don't know how the hell he got through it but um, and and it was just, it was the same you know cops cops I've got to say in the 80s um, and I've probably been a bit scathing in my book and, and my next book um, about just attitudinally and and the way they dressed. They, you could pick a cop 500 metres away, you know. They had the classic short back and sides, the brown pants with the green shirt, you know, the, <laughs> or, the, or, or the short sleeve white shirt with a bad tie. And, um, 
and and if you and I, you know, from the time I wanted to be a cop, I didn't want to look anything like a cop. And one of the best um, compliments I've gotten all through the years, even now, is, geez, you don't strike me as being a cop. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Um, so, I, you know, being an undercover cop was getting away from all of that um, discipline and, you know, eight hour a day shifts and being told when to take your meal break. And even as a detective, you know, there are certain rules and regulations. So for us to to be involved in something that was there was nothing. There were no rules. You just pretty much did what you liked, you know, within reason, I suppose. But then a few of the boys lost the, the side of that as well. But it was just such an adventurous world to be in. After two years in the police academy where it was really, you guys would get that, you know, it's it's basic training. You, I think your, your basic training is, what, six months maybe? Yeah, yeah. I don't know right. what it is these days. We were there for two years, yeah, getting screamed at and marching and, you know, carrying bloody 303s above your head cleaning tiles with toothbrushes. So, you know, imagine that shit for two years. So when, so when, you, when, when we came out and, uh, and then worked in uniform, that was a release, thank God. But then the whole undercover world was just, uh, you know, wow, the world's your oyster. So what happened? Um, um, you, you get selected for undercover when you're going through the academy mm-hmm. or do you have to go and do the beats? That- no. no. No, there was no course, mate. This is how, this is how Wild West it was. Some guys got picked at the academy because there was a, a friend of mine um, who was, I think he was Indian or Sri Lankan, um, because there weren't any Sri Lankans in the cops, and they grabbed him and put him into undercover almost as soon as he was sworn in. Um, and others of us volunteered. Years later, actually, a friend of mine who was the first Vietnamese cop in Queensland, if not Australia, um, he came over with his family as refugees when Vietnam fell. His dad had been an officer in the South Vietnamese Air Force, so they had, of course, get out before the communists grabbed them. He came over as a kid, grew up in uh, in Dara, um, where a lot of Vietnamese people settled and resettled, and joined the cops, and they grabbed him pretty much out of the academy. He may have had three months' service in uniform, and they just put him into covert where he stayed for 15 years. And that's, you know, another story that, uh, yeah, I, I was actually, I, I'm jumping around a bit, I know, but uh, as a... A detective later on my service i was actually running an operation he was involved in so you know you actually later we had people supervising undercovers and uh, he almost got killed and we had to drag him out um you know but he, he didn't really have a choice because it's almost like grooming you know they get a young um naive bloke or girl and uh and you know just grab them and say you're going to be special to us so you know we'll get you into this special area and then Unfortunately, when their use was over, they were just kicked to the curb, you know. So, so I, I volunteered for it, no training. I, I literally went in. Um, I think I might have taken a couple of weeks off to start to grow my hair a bit and maybe grow a beard because, again, cops weren't allowed to grow beards in those days. Um, I couldn't have long hair, certainly couldn't have an earring, so I think I went and got my ear pierced or something and, uh, <laughs> and you know, and went right into it. And I've got to make the point, guys, that in those days I didn't drink. You know, I, I, I did martial arts four or five days a week. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I'd never touched drugs. I was, you know, straight down the line. And, uh, and within three months of starting this up, I was a pot smoking, binge drinking, fucking raving lunatic. You know, it was just, it just went boom. Um, but so, so this, I think first day walked in, they gave me a little pistol, a little 25 cal um, browning, I think it was. And uh, some false number plates from a car because we used our own cars and uh, put me with a, a UC or an undercover guy that had been there for maybe two years. Went along on a couple of buys with him and I just shut up and listened and soaked it up and learned. And um, 
These days there's, a, there's an incredibly intense training course, selection process, psychological testing and all that stuff. But, you know, this is back in the old days. Could argue it was better, could argue it was worse. Yeah, I know. it'd probably be better for you guys to get into your character, having less management, less stuff for breathing down your neck. You really get into it. But that's what I'm interested in. With, yeah. with management and like reporting and stuff like that, how did that work yeah. back then? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, we, we, we were supposed to have, we were supposed to report directly to a certain detective or team of detectives, but it's a combination, mate. Either they didn't give a rat's ass where we were or... Um, they didn't really know how to manage us anyway. So you'd, you'd basically your briefing would be, for instance, if um, my first job out of Brisbane, here's a team, of, here's a, uh, some reports on, you know, potential drug dealers and uh, you and your mate jump in your car, bugger off up there and uh, give us a call when you've got something. So, you know, we'd, we'd actually go, generally one out, one out actually, and you just go like no mobile phones, they hadn't been thought of, no pages. So, you know, you basically find a public phone box, make sure no one's around and ring the office once a week and go, you know, I'm still here. Anybody care? Hello? Anybody? So there was no um, specific <laughs> handler, no like secret dead drops in the middle of the night. It was just... No, well, <laughs> dead drops. Um, <laughs> not, no, not, not, as a, not as a rule. There were some detectives who actually did try to look after us and they did try to maintain contact, but... Um, you basically, you know, if I was out scoring drugs, so if every every um, set of drugs I'd buy, I'd I'd voucher. Right? I'd put it in an envelope. I'd write notes about the conversation. I'd I'd seal it up. I'd sign it. Do all that sort of stuff and hide it in um, in the flat that I was living in or the house I was living in. Sometimes under the house. Sometimes you know under a drawer. Sometimes literally in the kitchen cupboard. And um, and when I got enough, I'd ring someone and they'd send someone up from Brisbane. I'd formally hand over the evidence in a, a Maybe at a dead drop at night, um, formally handed over, do the running sheets and shit, and then they'd they'd piss off, and I'd be back into it the next day, going, "Hey, here I am again." Um, not all bad though. I've got to make the point. You know, I, I've written in the book about the casualties of it, but I, I think I hope I've also gotten um, gotten the fact out that it was a pretty fucking adventurous life for a young bloke. You know, oh, oh, it was. You know, um, didn't carry a badge. You know, on the very rare occasions I did, it was well hidden under a spare tire in my car or something. Because um, so, so what happens? And no rules. I mean, what happened if you got caught with by, like, by the cops? I suppose <laughs> at first off, like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, well, yeah. You, you'd you'd learn really quickly because I, I got I got belted by two interstate detectives um, over the border in in Tweed Heads. I had. Uh, Shit, I, I don't know, I might have had a half an ounce of heroin, I had a shitload of pot, I had, you know, all these drugs that I bought, and I was over the border waiting to meet my contact, um, who'd driven down from Brisbane that day, you know, I'll meet you there, I'll pick up the gear and, you know, you'll be on your way. And I had a, we had a, we had access to every gun we wanted, basically. We, we went to the firearms section and looked through all the guns that had been seized and just picked out things that didn't look like cops' guns. So, you know, I'd, I'd turn them over every two months because I was, I was a bit crazy. And, uh, <laughs> I had a, um, I had a three fifty seven Magnum um, sitting in the boot of the car, which wasn't a cop gun in those days. So these two New South Wales detectives turned up, got me out of the car. It looked like a bag of shit, I guess. You know, I had shoulder-length hair and five-day growth and whatever. And I thought, fair enough, they're going to, you know, get my name and my detail. I had false ID, all good to go. And one of them said, open the boot of the car. And I thought, oh, no, I'm fucked. <laughs> um, so, so I just said, "Look, guys, got to tell you, I'm in the drug squad. I'm undercover. I'm waiting to meet my, my handler. Um, 
And then it turned bad because I didn't realise these two blokes were probably not as honest as most should have been. And um, I think the impression they got was I was in their territory. So they gave me a bit of a touch up to try and find out who I was working on and what I was doing. So, you know, fortunately, um, after about five minutes of getting smacked around the head and you just learn to cover up and go, fuck. Um, I just said, look, you pair of cunts, if you... Uh, so we, we, have a, we have a language warning on this. Yeah, yeah yes. absolutely, mate. Yeah. Clear, <laughs> clear, clear from, from episode one, mate. <laughs> I just said, uh, I said, you want to hang around for five minutes, you'll see exactly who I'm working on because my, my boss or my handler or whatever I called him is going to be here in a minute. And they just, you know, got in their car and drove off. Um, but Queensland, you know, Queensland was a pretty rough place in the 80s. Again, you've got to paint the picture of not all cops. You know, a lot majority of cops I work with are honest, good people. Yep. But they had an attitude about people that didn't fit in, particularly, you know, someone who looked like a, a grub or a drug dealer. You know, um, if you weren't careful, you'd end up on the wrong end of a, a backhand or a, you know, or whatever. And that was the that was the way it was. So you just basically learn to try to not... Um, Try to not put your head above the radar, I suppose. If I had been caught, I it would depend. It would clearly depend on the circumstance. Sometimes I'd just tough it out. If I didn't have any drugs on me, I didn't have a gun on me, I could just tough it out, use my false ID, and it'd be fine. Just depended. A couple of my mates were caught. A couple of my mates were raided um, in various jobs. A mate of mine was uh, he picked up a, a young lady, and he was in bed with her the next morning when the, the local drug squad on the Gold Coast kicked his door down, not knowing who he was. So that, that was a bit untidy because he had a gun beside his bed and yeah. <laughs> and then do you have the, is there an awkward conversation or, or you've got to pull your badge out and be like, bro. Well, there's no badge, mate. So you just go, I need to talk to you alone. You know, mate, I'm in the drug squad. Bullshit. Whack. <laughs> um, no, no, really I am. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I look back on it now and, and some of the things are still funny, you know, again, I don't know how much of the book you read or not, but. I did, uh, I did a job in Townsville with a mate and um, drove up there, car had a shock absorber blowout, put it in the local um, mechanic to get it repaired. And I cleaned, I thought I'd cleaned the gun out. I had a shoddy, I had a couple of pistols, you know, because everybody had a gun then. Everybody had one. You could walk into any sports store or even Kmart, yeah, shit, you're not Kmart and go and buy a 223 Mini 14 Ruger. From no Kmart. ID, no nothings. Yeah, from Kmart. So uh, everybody had a gun. So we were, we, were, we were armed to the teeth. Put it into the mechanic, thought I'd cleaned it out, but I, I bloody forgot a box of ammo, that uh, 38 um, revolver ammo, hollow points, that I'd had hidden in the car. So this guy called the coppers. Coppers came looking for, I picked the car up all nicely and innocently. I had the big beard and the long hair and stand there minding my own business, you know, having a beer on the balcony. And I said to my mate, shit, there's three, three cop cars outside, detectives. Must be something on. I went, Fuck, must be serious. We've got guns in their hands. Jesus Christ, they're coming up here. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so <laughs> pounding at the door, open the door, and bang, I've got a, a literally had a 38 put in my mouth and uh, rammed against the wall, as you would. Fair enough. They thought I, they were bad guys. And, um, and then just kept my mouth shut. And this guy, who later became a very good friend of mine, um, pulled his 30 out because the first thing I thought was, fuck, I hope his weapon handling skills are up to scratch because this isn't oops. good. And, uh, <laughs> oops, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, it gave me a bit of a bit of a belting and because um, I'd said, yeah, if you open the car up downstairs, there's going to be guns in there. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. That's, that's a rookie error. So he gave me another couple of, you know, rips and whatever. And um, then my mate said, enough, enough, enough. You know, I've got to talk to you. We're in the drug squad. So 
to this day, and, and this guy, Ferret, was a Vietnam veteran. He was um, an infantry machine gunner in an infantry um, uh, company in Vietnam. Good bloke. And to this day, he still says, geez, you know, Banksy, he didn't give, it, didn't give up. He didn't say anything. I was giving it to him, and he just covered up. And... Thanks, mate. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, funny days. So how long how um, long would you work a case as an undercover or how long were you actually undercover in total? Um, mate, all up, uh, the first time, almost two years. Then I went back and did another couple of jobs after that when I was a little older. I got press ganged back into it because apparently I was regarded as a, as a pretty good operator. Um, so I'd say all up, maybe three years um, for each job. Completely depends on how far you get up the chain. So I worked one out on the Gold Coast and uh, predominantly bought heroin. So I got as far up the chain as um, the purity of the heroin was 82% from memory or 83%. And purity means that uh, it's almost near the importer because all through the drug supply chain, people step on it or they um, uh, they add things to it, laxative baby powder, whatever. Um, and oh, Sorry, baby milk, not baby powder. Oh, sometimes baby powder. And, and they increase the volume or the weight of it, so the profit margins go through the roof. So that I think that one took me maybe maybe five months to get to that stage. Completely all depends. Because you know? this would change your personality. Uh, I, no, sorry, that's probably a leading question. Um, yeah. Did you lose? Yeah. You're, no, did, true though. You were young, you're young when you got into the, the squad, so your mm. personality is still developing. As dudes, I don't think we mm. mature out until we're like 35. If you ask my missus, it's like, I still haven't. Took the words right out of my mouth, mate. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it did. I, I, you know, I, and I, I came through it relatively well. You know, I had a mate who developed a heroin habit, um, became an armed robber because they just kicked him to the curb. Terrible, horrible story. Um, had another couple of mates who went to jail who just got so fixated on the drug life that they, they the lines got really blurry for them. But what it did to me was it, yeah, changed my personality, all right? But I went into undercover with a whole black and white view of the world. You were either a good bloke or you're an asshole. Yeah. Um, you were a good bloke if you were a copper or you were a citizen that didn't do anything wrong. You're an asshole if you had a joint and worse. So I came out of that with a whole realization about the world is not as it seems. Um, and I've said this to a number of people over the years, even before I started writing about it. You know, I said, um, I met a lot of drug dealers. You actually weren't bad people. Yeah, absolutely. They were selling drugs, which is horrible, but they, you know, heroin particularly, but they weren't bad blokes. They were loyal to their partners. They were family men, you know. I met a lot of coppers who weren't good blokes and, uh, you know, and corrupt coppers and, and, you know, blokes who were screwing everything that moved. And, hey, that's their call, not mine, but but you know what I mean? There's, there's this whole uh, paradox in the world. So things to me became shades of grey, not black and white anymore. So on that note, it actually made me a more rounded person, not a mature one, but a more rounded one. Because um, I came out, you know, that there's a, there's a great line in a song called Copperhead Road by Steve Earle. I came home with a brand new plan. You know, every time I hear that, I go, yeah, that's exactly what I was like. I came out with a whole new attitude to life. And it gave me an ability as a junior detective that I, I sort of went down that road to be able to talk to people on their level and not treat them like pricks. And that's part and parcel of interrogation, you know. And I think that's it. It's the grey area between uh, you hear stories about good guys just doing stuff as as a source of income to get out. Like they they make the decision, 
suppose it's like the Breaking Bad. Mm. If you want to dumb it down or oversimplify it, it's good guys yeah. in desperation doing bad things. Yep. Or they haven't got, you know, there's no education, mate. They may come from a shit area, shit environment. Um, that's not an excuse because I did as well. But but I get it, you know. I, I, I get it that you don't necessarily have to be an evil person to be a drug dealer. Sometimes life just happens and that's a choice they made. But there were, there, were, there were blokes, particularly blokes, in that world that I quite liked having a beer with. And I actually felt more comfortable with them than I did when I had a, a bit of R&R and I was hanging around with some coppers again. I actually felt more comfortable in that world. Whether that's a psychological reliance on, hey, listen to me, sound like, sound like yeah. I know what I'm talking about. Um, whether that's a psychological reliance on, on that world of, um, I don't know, the rush of adventure and, and, the, and the fear and the adrenaline, and you guys would probably relate to that because a lot of you guys probably miss um, where you were overseas when you came back home, you know. Um, and it's it's similar. It was similar for me. I actually couldn't wait to get back into that lifestyle because I knew who I was, even though I was living a fake life. Sounds bizarre, um, but a lot of undercovers I've spoken to felt that way as well. You know, um, it, it'd have to be. It'd have to play on you with with. Uh, the like your your effect learning to lie and manipulate and and or is that do you have to change your whole persona and your whole identity? Is it you live a lie or you um, just become somebody else? Yeah, that's a good question, Max. Um, my mate Larry, who I, I, there was a guy who was a couple of years older than than I was that went into it around the same time as I did. He called it he called it um, NIDA on steroids. So the National Institute of Dramatic Art on steroids. He said because if you get a bad review as an actor, it might hurt your feelings. You get a bad review as a UC, you get your fucking head belted in with a baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but that was part of the buzz as well. You know, absolutely learning, learning to sit and look at someone straight in the eye and lie to them, completely lie to them. Um, and my my wife sometimes says it's like I've got a master's degree in lying to people. Maybe I have. Um, <laughs> but it was it was just such the such a buzz as well, and you just learned to lie. But in the back of your mind, in that little part that sort of kicks around the lizard brain, I suppose, you had to remember who you were, and you were one of the good guys, not one of the bad guys. But the whole buzz was that you could be a bad guy. You know, you could act like one, you could talk like one, you could carry a gun like one, you could use threats of violence, sometimes violence, like one. But at the same time, having that understanding that you weren't one. Really, really unique experience. From, from that, and like lying straight to people's faces, have you ever been either, either busted and, like, uh, and found out mm. or been really close to that? And if so, like, what was, it, what was that situation like? Yeah. Yeah, great. Again, good question, mate. Yes, the answer is yes. Um, the first job, undercover job I did, I didn't really have that confidence, so, you know, and, and my constant... Um, feedback from my mates was you're too fucking nice you know just be a cunt and and because I'd been a nice bloke it was hard to do and um and so the first job I was on I was buying I was buying hash I was buying speed uh lots of dope some acid whatever from this guy and I would meet him at his at his house or you know um in certain pubs and whatever and one night he said, I'll oh, come and have a drink with me at the, uh, this place called the Royal Exchange Hotel in Brisbane, which is now a really cool pub. Back then, the only people that went there were, were bikies, crooks, drug dealers, people who wanted to score. 
you know it was just you, you weren't there for any other reason um or you were bloody naive so i walked in there one night it's a winter winter and i remember it vividly big long table and this bloke sitting in the in the center of the table the place is packed there's a about half a dozen patched uh biker gang members in one corner there's some other obvious dealers there's some hard-bitten painters and dockers just you know just a bloodbath in the pub and i I, carry, I had my little 25 caliber pistol with me just down in some Ugg boots, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, classic guy that I was. And, you uh, really and I had, off a, I had a sort of. Quick, mate. Okay. <laughs> oh, so did I, I ever? Hey, hey, I, I went from ironing my jeans and ironing my t shirts to wearing Ugg boots and fucking shirts that were four days, you know, same shirt, four days in a row. And, um, and I walked in and, uh, and I went, hey, how are you going? And you know, you get a sense when something's not right. And I thought, yeah, this vibe isn't good. And, um, and I sat down and there's silence and this massive, massive bloody noise. This table is silent. There's this guy and maybe, I think, two of his mates on either side. Oh, sorry, two on his side, two of them sitting beside me. So I'm, I'm just thinking, yeah, this isn't good at all. I said, so uh, what's going on? And he just looked at me and said, I think you're a narc, narc being undercover cop. And, of course, I did the heart, what do you mean, bullshit, bloody blah. And he said, I've checked your number plates. They're fucking false number plates. And that's when my blood ran cold and I thought, oh, Jesus. Firstly, how could he do that? Secondly, no one's prepared me for this shit. I've got no idea what to do. So, uh, and I couldn't get to my gun in a pink fit, you know, because I would bloody, I think I'd masking taped it around my ankle or something. And um, so I'm thinking, fuck. So all I did was I just stood up and, and, uh, and screamed at him and said, you're a fucking dog. How the fuck can you check my number plates, you fucking cunt? You're working for the feds, you fucking maggot, blah, blah, blah. All the, all the time, the adrenaline and the fear is going, oh, Jesus. And, um, and, I, and I, was, you know, I was training martial arts a lot, and I still do. And, and I was just measuring how far I could reach across just to elbow strike him in the, in the nose, at least take him out. And, um, and then he's just gone, hey, 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 calm down, calm down. Because the last thing you want to be accused of in a, in a, in a bloodbath pub is being a, an informer. So on that note, I've you know, pushed my chair back, pushed one of these guys out of the way. And, and bear in mind, boys, I was ringing wet about, Shit, I would have been lucky to top 70 kilos. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I've just done the whole, get the fuck out of my way, you fucking rah, 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 and out I go. And got to the car, and I remember having to hold my hand because my hands are shaking so much to try and put the key in the in the door to get my car and, and, and go out and leave. And I was shitting myself. Um, so went home, you know, because we all lived, we didn't have safe houses in those days, lived in our own places. So I did a lot of anti-surveillance to make sure I wasn't being followed and got home, couldn't sleep, you know, stressed out, thinking, fuck, fuck, fuck. Um, and I, uh, I spoke to one of my other undercovers the next morning and he said, right, you've done the, great, the right thing. All you've got to do, mate, is be right on the front foot. So I rang this guy from a phone booth and then threatened to come around with my mate and break his legs and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and he was apologetic and just went, oh, sorry. And I said, so how the fuck do you check my number plate? He'd paid off someone in the main roads department to run a check because back in those days everyone was for sale, you know. So, so that's that's my favourite story about getting busted. But there were others, you know. People people would say, "I think you're a narc." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as soon as you produce that magic roll of cash, all of their doubts dissolved. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, <laughs> you just it's just it's just like anything. The the more you practice, the better you got. Classic case of deny, 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 mm. counter accuse. <laughs> absolutely so so there's four there's four steps to this never admit anything deny everything demand proof and make counter allegations yeah. that's, that's, 
feel free to use it. We'll clip that out for all the boys that are coming home from, from the pub late, you know. <laughs> That's right. I, I can run a whole tutorial on that. You program for the app. <laughs> uh, I, I can't believe at that age with and, – and the Wild West, and I, I sort of want to get into it, but mm. – I mean, P- PTSD and traumatic—they were fairly benign or unknown conditions, right? Yeah, unknown. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, you've been doing this for a while. Did you? When did you notice yourself that summer isn't quite right? And and was it an external force or was it yourself going? Fuck. Yeah. This right. Um, mate, I, I I went I came through undercover pretty much unscathed, but I needed a rush, so. I, I volunteered for special weapons, so tactical work, tactical operations, which was part-time in those days. We became full-time, blah, blah, blah. Um, loved it. Cracked through a lot of hot doors. You know, the, the SASR came over and trained us every year at Canungra Land Warfare Centre, part of the National Terrorist Plant. Loved it. Rap, repelled out of choppers, you know, and, and as you know, going through a hot door um, is always scary. If you're not scared, you're an idiot. Um but it all it all changed for me in 1987. We went through a door when we were um, uh, we were chasing or we were executing a warrant on the number one most wanted armed robber in Queensland and probably the number two most wanted in Australia, violent prick, who'd uh, you know shot a security guard in the back for no reason, delighted in shoot in, in shooting. I think he'd killed someone else in Sydney. Just a violent bastard. Ex army, lived on the land, you know, knew his weaponry and so on. Um, We'd put together a plan to raid the house. Uh, the plan had been knocked back by someone in headquarters, someone in force command, because it, it, it utilised uh, distraction grenades and tear gas. And in those days, they didn't want to upset the public because at that time, the Fitzgerald inquiry into corruption was going on. So so our deliberate option was, you know, it was stymied by, um, by not um, utilising everything that I, I knew should be utilised. So cut a long story short again. Went into the house. This guy had... Um, had changed the direction the doors swung. So on an inwards cracking door, he'd made them turn outwards to you know, delay us by a couple of seconds. He'd uh, built a trapdoor in his bedroom, had a scanner, although we were using voice protection, so he, he couldn't hear us. But but anyway, opened up on us and it was a shit fight. One of my guys died that morning in hospital. He was shot five times. Our, our vests were level two, so they were only designed for shotties and um, uh, pistols. You know, even a 22 rifle would have gone through them. Um, Another one of my mates was shot um, at the, in the lower stomach, fortunately survived, but he ended up with a round about literally a millimetre from his spine, and I thought he was dead. And two of us went in and took the guy out. No problem. Never lost a second sleep over taking this guy out. But I I reckon within, I reckon within two weeks, I, something had gone wrong with me. I didn't know what it was. We didn't know what PTSD was. The support was non-existent. There was no psychological counselling. There was nothing. Um, that day, we were interviewed by the Homicide Squad, the two of us, and the others who, who were there who didn't fire shots, of course, but everyone was interviewed. Um, after it was done, they took us upstairs to the police club to get us on the gas. So all people knew how to do, and that, that's fine. Um, but then it just started to change. You know, I, I just, over the next, probably took me 25 years to, to get better. To get to the stage I am now, um, I had survivor guilt for a long time because I was the one who chose the order of march. Yeah, and even though it wasn't my fault, my my mind and my emotional state wouldn't let me believe that it wasn't my fault. 
So, you know, I, I just, I was in a dark place for a long time. Um, and, I, and, and I think it was maybe, maybe four or five weeks after this, um, we were given information that the two of us who'd, who'd shot the crook had a contract on our heads from, uh, from some crims in Sydney who were friends of his. So they gave us permission to carry our nine mils off duty, which was unheard of. But that was it. There was no protection. There was nothing. So I, I carried this thing with me like a security blanket, as you'd probably expect. But I reckon four or five, four or five, yeah, four or five weeks. We, we were told that, then maybe a couple of weeks after that, and I was drinking every night, and and I did I like to drink, but I didn't drink every night before this. I was on the gas every night just to sleep. Um, put it put it in my mouth. I was home one night alone, racked up around, put it in my mouth, and uh, and I just thought. If I just squeeze the trigger, all this shit will go away and then I'll know what my mates know. Just a very strange, dark place to be in. And the only reason I didn't squeeze the trigger was I was living with my girlfriend then and I'd been to a suicide a couple of years before where this guy had killed himself with a 303 and, and taken literally the top of his head off and, and all the brain spatter and the blood and, and so on all over the wall. And in that, just that one moment, I thought, shit, if I do this, she's going to come home and find that, and, and that'll devastate her. Not that I was worried about dying, because it just didn't even factor, but the fact that she'd find it, and, and that would devastate her. So in that moment of one second of, of clarity, took it out and went, fuck, <laughs> dropped the mag, ejected the round, stripped it down, hid, hid the slide in one part of the house, the frame in another, um, and went to bed, and then woke up the next morning and thought, things aren't quite right here. <laughs> But I didn't realise that, that I didn't realise it was just it wasn't just me. I just thought it was me. I just thought I was losing my mind, you know. And, and, and did you, from that point with treatment pathways and stuff, did you put your hand up back then, or was that just a just wore it? Was wasn't anything yeah. available then, mate? There, there was no, and, and the culture was the culture was that you didn't do that. I was worried because I wanted blood after Peter had been killed. I, I wanted blood. I wanted to take out as many crooks as I could. And and that that dark side really started to take over because I'm a nice bloke and um, even if I do say so myself, <laughs> but but I could actually feel that whole change and shift in identity, and and I knew on one level that if I put my hand up, they'd take me out of the tactical group, and that meant I didn't have the chance to take anybody out. So you know I just internalised it all, self-medicated, cried by myself. Um, Exercise like a demon, drank like a lunatic. Exercise like a demon, drink like a lunatic. You know, and um, and and every chance I got, I didn't take leave. Every chance I got, I went on every job I could with the intention of squeezing the trigger again. And uh, and I realised after a couple of years that a couple of years for this, that um, that I was really in in danger of that dark side taking over who I was. So I just went to my boss and said, you know. I got to get out, but that, that was probably prompted by the fact that they transferred someone into the group who was sent there to calm us down, which wasn't a bad thing because I wasn't the only one. We, we shot more people in the next two years after Peter was killed than we ever had before because we just went, fuck this. We're not going to give anybody a chance. All quite legal, all legal shootings, all good shootings, but none of the drop your gun, drop your gun, drop your gun like we like police used to. So he was sent there to uh, to really, you know, try and get us to pull our heads in, I guess. And uh, and I, I didn't like that at all. I took great offence to that. So And that's when I realised I was just changing into a bit of a, a bit wrong. I was changing into a homicidal lunatic. So then I volunteered to go um, 
back into criminal intel or go to criminal intelligence back into the covert world. But I had all that stuff still running around my head. Long because time. I've been talking to boys about this um, <clears throat> and some of our experiences and even my experiences overseas. Uh, we talk about PTSD and then we talk about moral injuries. And it was yep. the will or the want to kill someone else. You, you, yep. And it was, they were, like I said, they were, they were legal killings overseas. They weren't war crimes. They weren't, mm. but it was the want to kill, totally it was the understand. want to kill yep. this dude. And then trying to justify it and live with that and go, well, I wasn't raised like this, but why do I want to do this? Mm. And that was the, that's the turmoil that's been going through, you know, a lot of boys overseas, I suppose, and, and that have come back. And it's just really interesting that it sounds, I mean, the survivor mm. guilt as well, but this, this stuff piled on. Was that something that you went through? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you're right. It's you know I, I used to I used to struggle internally with the fact that that's that's not how I was raised. That's not I would not why I wanted to be a cop. But here I was in a world where I was absolutely looking for the opportunity. So I understand what those guys I understand what they're thinking and saying. You know, and um, and it probably reinforces with me that the PTSD journey is not isolated to an occupation. So uh, it's not isolated to to a theatre of war versus a theatre of policing. You know, it's the same, basically the same thing that really hits that um, that emotion and, and, and your mind. Um, and and I totally understand it, mate. And on that subject, it makes me fucking furious about the media coverage about the allegations that have been made, as if they're all completely proven and truthful. You know, it just it really burns me. Um, and I, I probably lost a couple of friends over it because I get quite. <laughs> I get quite annoyed to put it bluntly, or sorry, wrong, to understate it, and I get pretty pissed off about it, um, because that has an effect on everybody. It's like, it's like the corruption inquiry that we went through. We were all tarred with the same brush, yeah. Even though no stats, let's make them up. Ninety-eight point nine percent of coppers are straight, good, honest, dedicated people, but we're all tarred with the same brush, you know. And if there's been something that's happened in a theatre of war, everybody gets tied with the same brush. It really, and, and the other fact is, as I just said, nothing's nothing's been tested in a court of law. You know, shut the fuck that up. That is a big one. Would shut be the my, fuck up and you know, let's go through the system that we have in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Give some people some natural justice, for God's sake. Um, but anyway, the, sorry, I'll just climb back off my soapbox there. <laughs> that's 100 percent because it's such a big thing at the yeah. moment with all the boys getting getting done over. Yeah, absolutely, and it's not good for not good for their mental health or emotional. I think I think um, I think culturally the impacts have been fucking huge throughout the ADF. I think it's taken a massive yeah. hit with people's uh, motivation levels or even patriotism. Yeah. It's people because, as you said, everyone's been painted yeah. with the same brush, so it's not great, mate. And and, and a statement. Yeah, and sorry to interrupt, King, but it, um, you know, for for the chief to say I'm going to take away the meritorious unit citation from everybody. You know, just appalling. Just yeah, it's fair enough when someone needs punishment, but not not an entire regiment. That's right. It's not. It's not like when you're going through basic training where you give everyone a, everyone push-ups because someone's yeah. late. I get that. That's fine. But you know, this is just this is just an extreme reaction to probably try to appease public opinion. Who the hell knows? And, and how do you do that? So, as a as a cop, or as someone in the army, if you look at it, and and maybe there's some some similarities but as a cop if you're going through a corruption trial and they're like well they fucking think we're all corrupt anyway like you hold yourself to standards as a police officer i would imagine that a 
you're supposed to be, you know, you hold uphold justice and all law and order and all these things. And that's one of the, mm. the pillars that I would imagine people hold themselves to. Uh, and then they say, well, everyone, all the coppers are corrupt. You're like, well, fuck, if they all think I'm corrupt, well, I might, might as fucking well be. Like, and, and, and the same as the army, Mate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know, see, because it, it comes back to your moral compass. What it did for us when we had all of that, that media attention on us saying, oh, you know, you're all corrupt. And, and we had um, <laughs> we had a police commissioner flown, sorry, a guy promoted to commissioner level from Victoria who spent all of his service in an office, who had all, you know, this attitude. And he, he went to his first uh, induction parade at the academy and told all the inductees they were the new force and we're all, the, we're all, he used a Star Wars, Star Wars analogy, which was something like, you know, you're um, the Jedi Knights and, and the other police are the dark forces and some fucking bullshit. And, um, and, and they were told that anybody above the rank of senior constable, which was, I think, about five, seven years service or something, we were all corrupt because if we w hadn't partaken in it, we knew about it and hid it. So what, what that did was that, that really united us. Yeah? The, the majority of coppers went, well, fuck them. They can think what they like but we're still here to lock up bad guys and protect people from the bad guys. So there's still a lot of bitterness now, even all these years later. You know, I'm, I'm on a, a closed Facebook group that we have for just cops to, to openly talk about PTSD, depression, anxiety, and, and so on, and event. And, um, oh, and here's a shameless marketing ploy. I, um, I put the cover of my next book up <laughs> and, said, um, and said, it's going to be released, guys and girls, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then I had this whole thread of people going, fantastic, mate. Hope you talk about that fucking inquiry and the bullshit we went through and even all these years later. But it, but it just, you know, it just united us. So that's probably the silver lining that happened out of that. And, and I hope the same happens with the ADF where you just go, well, fuck them. You know, um, we're good yeah. guys. Um, coming back a bit to your, um, your Valor Award for that day uh, with with your like sort of tactical response group sort of stuff how did yeah. how did you go yeah. about accepting that because i know obviously that was a bad day for you and not a good day but then they're obviously trying to pin an award on your chest yeah. for you doing what you yeah. did um it, yeah it, it's on uh, it, yeah that <laughs> i'm stumbling and stammering only because it's only people who actually get decorated who understand how difficult it is to accept one um it was it was really bittersweet. It was it was great that um, we were recognised, but fucking sad that Pete wasn't there. And and I would have much rather handed every medal I've got back to have my mate, um, you know, standing beside me to have a beer. Because um, I, I, I got I got two valor medal two valor award medals on the same day. One was for that. One was for something else I'd done. Um, and and the other thing that I was decorated for was where I actually went somewhere with the intention of killing a guy and then ended up sitting with him and saving his life. So that's the bittersweet thing as well. You know, I was really proud to be acknowledged for the second one, but the first one, yeah, it was tough. Um, but I, I accepted it um, because it was, it was important for his memory and it was important for any future kids that I had because I didn't have kids at that stage. And I and I, I struggled with it and I weighed it all up and thought, no, nah, it's you know, it's yeah. I'm proud of it now, but it took me fifteen years to put my citations on the wall. You know? That they just sat somewhere. I didn't feel comfortable because it was like boasting or bragging or, you know, 
that sort of stuff. It's quite quite interesting in hindsight. You know how, what what you go. It still makes me uncomfortable now, as you can yeah. see. Um, you know, so with your what was yeah. so with your second. Um, do you want to run us through your second uh, Valor Award? Yeah, mate. I I, uh, I was uh, gone from intelligence back to the major crime squad then, and and it's a bit of a long story. I'll give you the short brief. Um, uh, I, I was actually running an undercover guy. I went to see him on a, it was a Saturday, with the intention of um, do the running sheets, get the evidence, make sure he's all cool. And uh, we're in a, we're in a covert car, not like a normal CIB unmarked car, but a very covert one. And. Uh, <laughs> And we went right. It's ten to three. We're knocking off at four. We'll uh, we'll cruise through Queen Street, pervert the girls, and uh, you know, come back to headquarters, which is you know quite a quite quite a good way to spend a Saturday afternoon. And um and there was any unit call that a, a guy had fired shots in the centre of the city in this uh, the MLC building, which was a pretty major um, landmark in Brisbane in those days. I was always armed. Um, so and just what you know, and any cop worth their salt will always go to a shots fired call. And it was wasn't too long after the Hoddle Street massacre. You guys may you were pretty young when that happened, I think. But <clears throat> the guy killed all these people in Melbourne. Um, there was a Queen Street massacre in in Melbourne. A guy stormed through a building and shot I don't know eleven or twelve people or something. So again, everybody had a gun then. So my immediate thought was shit. You know, this guy's um, roaming through a building, firing shots. Got to get in there. So anyway, turned up. Uh, no cordon, no inner cordon, and a lot of cops weren't trained then and a lot of cops don't really not their fault but if they haven't got the training they don't react quickly in emergency situations so I jumped out I'm in a pair of jeans and dressed down and my hair was a bit longer than it should have been as usual and um so I raced over and you know got a cordon happening and 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 <laughs> and raced up the set of stairs with my firearm in my hand and there's a uniform guy uniform sergeant standing there and I said right where is this prick and he's just gone um he's he's there mate he's right there Fuck! Look around, and here's this, and I hear this voice that says, "Put the gun down, or I'll fucking blow the joint up." And I looked in, and there was a guy sitting there, long hair, beard, overweight, um, rifle across his lap, um, and a box, jellic uh, turned out to be jellic knife, a cardboard box in front of him, and some old army webbing about Vietnam era army webbing. And I've looked in, I've gone, okay, don't you know, blah blah blah, nothing silly. Who the fuck are you? And I thought, well, gun probably a cop of it anyway so i've gone produce my badge and he just said uh and i still don't know why he said uh put the gun down and come and talk to me i don't know why i gave my gun to to mal and took a couple of steps in and thought jesus christ there ended up there were 15 and a half now there were 16 sticks of jellic night with three electronic debts wired in series it was an ied and um and i just got in there and i said so <laughs> my name's keith what's your name and um, and just made it up as I went along because I'm not a negotiator. And anyway, so what's in the box? He tossed me a half a stick of sweating jellic night, and and you guys know what that is. And and I and I remember thinking, you got to have a sense of humor about these things. I remember thinking, shit, because I'd been in the bomb squad, so I knew what was going on. And uh, yeah, this is sweating jellic night. It can be set off by anything that bumps it, like I don't know, dropping it on the floor. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so stable, uh, yeah. <laughs> So no, so I just I just sat with him. I, I broke a few rules. He wanted a six pack in return for the rifle, so you not you can't do that. So I broke a rule anyway and got a got a, a pot of beer brought in for him. And he was smoking over unstable jellic night and 
Anyway, just so fucking ash on it, mate. So, <laughs> just, yeah, just, just stop. Yeah, and and I, I actually I thought about doing the Bruce Willis thing, you know, and diving at him and pushing the because he had he had the um he had the debt wires bed ready to go and uh and he had a uh, a twelve volt you know those dolphin yeah. torch big twelve volt batteries on the floor beside him with the hand that never went away from the battery and all it was was positive negative gone. And um, and I thought about diving over. Then I thought, no, nah, it's all unstable and that's stupid anyway. And fuck. So, in essence, I sat with him for an hour and a half and talked him down and talked him out. Thank God. Um, it's a chapter in the next book, though. See, shameless hey, marketing. Shameless. <laughs> are you going to make it? Oh, are you, you going to go audible with it, or are you going to? Um, yeah. 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 The the guy who reads it actually is very. Um, I'll plug for him. I don't know. Do any any women uh, watch this podcast? Uh, well, there's a couple of currents. So, what was like? What's our audience segment, Keggs? He's our producer. What's, yeah, what's yeah, yeah. Segment? So, what I'm going to say, if you if you Google this guy's name, he's he's got like a twelve thousand Instagram following, and ninety eight percent of them. Oh, are well, we definitely need so... that because we've got we've got ninety seven percent dudes that follow this podcast. And I... maybe you can get maybe you can get him to sort of you know promote you or something. Now he's um he's a, an Australian actor. He's a good guy. Uh, Joel Jackson. He he did the Audible on the first one. Um, and I actually met him coincidentally before the book was published. So, you know, um, I got him in and, you know, he's a big, good looking guy with an eight pack, you know, the usual stuff. That's why he's got 10,000 female followers on Instagram, I suppose. Um, but he did a cracker of a job. So, yeah, he'll do the same one again. Because now that I'm now that I've got some success as an author and this sounds wanky because it's still a new world to me, I can actually tell them who I want to do the audible. And I sort of pushed the envelope last time and I'm absolutely making sure that he does it this time because he does a great job. Yeah, because I've got a couple. So, I listen. To, I've got a subscription to Audible, and um, I think I've, I can't listen to them enough. Uh, my trips to work, my commuting, because now I work from home. I used to uh, commute to work. Yeah. That was my podcasting and, and Audible listening time. Yeah. But now I, I work from home. Yeah. My my ability to actually absorb the information is reduced, so my credits build up. But yeah, um, you, you do get some amazing books that are narrated by. Um, robots and you're like fuck i can't this is a sick book and i can't listen to this fucking dude man. yeah i know mate uh well what happened was that that they sent me and again a whole new world right they sent me two um voiceover actors you know reading parts of my, my first one and it's like oh there we were you know three against a thousand i'll oh, fuck that <laughs> off and uh and then some other guy's gone well you know the dangerous part of this night oh jesus now this is bullshit and um and I'd met Joel through my daughter, actually, because he was doing a lot of training on the Australian Ninja set. My daughter has a friend who was training on that. And um, anyway, she said, oh, why don't you get Joel? So Joel's got a bloody Logie Award. He'll, he won't want to do this. And she said, just text him and see how it goes. And if you guys ever have daughters, just do what yeah. they say. Okay? <laughs> um, so uh, so I texted him and just said, mate, you know, we met a couple of years ago. Got a book. you interested in doing the Audible? He rang me straight away from Perth. And his first words were, Fuck yeah. <laughs> and you're like, so oh, there's your interview too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so, and he did it. He did, you know, there's no bullshit. He just did a great job and read it really, really well. Um, the characterizations, all that sort of stuff. So, um, and even though I knew what was going to happen at the end, I'm going, fuck, this is a good book. <laughs> so, so uh, highly, see, there you go. Highly endorse and recommend. When's it, it coming out, mate? Mate, haven't got a, a real, I haven't got a definite date yet, but certainly July. Yep. Um, I was literally proofreading today. I've got the manuscript and just proofreading through, and that then goes back to the publisher. It's gone to the lawyers, and the lawyers have said this, and I've gone, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, 
boring bastards. Um, so, so July sometime. I, I would hope maybe mid July, but um, but I'll let you guys know. Yeah, definitely. Now I've got your details and stuff. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Did you get much redacted out of it because of you know undercover work or? Um, no, just ch- well, yeah. The first one, mate. I I not redacted so much as I I changed a lot of things. I changed names. Um, I changed operation names. Um, but what I bloody should have put in my author's note and I didn't was that the conversations were all as they were, because I actually when I moved house a few years ago, I found a cardboard box with all my undercover notebooks that I'd kept. So as I'm writing the book, I had my my notebook beside me going right. I've called this person X, and their real name is J. But fuck me, that's the conversation. So I literally was, you know, doing all that. So it's um, it's as it happened. Um, and where the, it's the interesting thing about writing, if someone's dead, you can say what you like because the laws of defamation don't apply. Um, and as my publisher I dealt with, I, I spoke with her a couple of days ago and she said, oh, we love dead people. And now I understand why. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but if, if there, there was stuff I wrote about that's that's actually in the media and historically accurate, that's all cool too. I wrote about a guy that I was buying drugs from who wanted to knock me um, later on. I thought we were mates. And, um, and, uh, and I've used his real name because he actually, you know, went back to jail. It was an escapee from uh, a jail in South Australia for a double murder. Um, and uh, so, so we, that's, you can use that where it's all, it's all quite, you know, on the public record, I guess. But where I'd wanted to write about corrupt bastards, I couldn't use their names, unfortunately. But... Um, I'm sure if they read the book, they'll know who they are. That's all that matters. That's what matters, mate. That's right. Read between right. the lines. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you how bet. Did you, how yeah. Did you, what about personal relationships, mate? Was this something that, I mean, I know, like young, hang about, like, back, mm. you know, banging around and that, but, but when you got a serious relationship, you're like, I've got to go on a cover. I mean, is this, can you tell them? Uh, no, I didn't have didn't one. Have one. Didn't have one, mate. Um, no. I um <clears throat> I had I was pretty keen on my hairdresser for a couple of years and she she I told her I was a bloody failed law student or something and um and I'd go in there every few months to get my hair cut and whatever and uh, and I was pretty keen on her but the day I started back in uniform I literally went in that morning got an early appointment got all my hair cut off and I had my uniform pants on and a tracksuit top over my uniform shirt and I she said why are you getting your hair cut and I said oh, blah 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 lied to you for a couple of years I'm a copper here's my uniform, thinking she'd go, oh, oh that's so wonderful. <laughs> no, she didn't, she didn't speak to me again, <laughs> ever. She was a crib. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a bit harsh. Um, but, uh, but no, you just didn't have relate. You just couldn't. You just couldn't. Um, so, and as, as, as my mate Ando famously said to me about day two of my undercover stuff, he said something like, um, listen, mate, if you've got a girlfriend, fuck her off because uh, you're going to be all over the state and you're going to meet a lot of honeys in this job. Don't fuck any targets, but you're going to meet a lot of other honeys. And uh, so take my advice. So I went, okay, <laughs> it works. <laughs> uh. I didn't put that in that certain parts in the book, though. And I went to a mate's send-off in Brisbane a few weeks ago. I happened to be up there. And, uh, and a great guy is retiring. And he said, so Banksy's here. And I've just got to say about his book, he led an R-rated life and wrote a G-rated book. What the fuck's that about? <laughs> Um, but sorry, mate. No, you just you just couldn't do it. And uh, and in fact, I I um I was training in a in a, a career in Taekwondo, a uh, call it a dojo. And I went to my my chief instructor and said, look, told him, so I'm going to go undercover, but I have to tell other people in the club that I've been sacked, that I've been found with some drugs in my locker, and I've been fired. 
So they actually believed that I was a disgraced copper for you know at least 18, 19 months of my first stint until I went back and, uh, and just said, no, I've actually been telling you fibs as well. They took it much better than the hairdressers. <laughs> and they would love the action. <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah, I'll tell us some stories, you know. Um. Mate, is there relationships that you form with dudes you've put away that you were like, oh, I really like this guy, but is... Yeah, and, yeah. And, or have you... Is there relationships you've continued now with dudes that you met? Or is um, there anyone that's sort no, of... No, no, not not undercover, but there was one guy that I, I didn't want to buy from because he was a great guy, really good bloke, and all he was doing was selling. Okay, it was a lot of weed, but it was just weed, and um, and I really liked him, and he kept making me offer after offer after offer because my cover was I was a heroin dealer, even though I was only twenty two, twenty three or something. I, I had a you know nice flashy clothes, and and that's what you did. You dressed, and I I could talk the talk, and I was pretty confident in the world, and and so on. And he was trying to do me a favour because, oh, come on, mate, you know, I've got, I've got a hundred of these sticks that have come in from Thailand. They're fucking excellent. You make a lot of money. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Anyway, put me in a position one day where I just couldn't refuse. It was just too much. And I just went, okay, bugger. Um, when the operation finished, in those days, we, we were blown. So our identity was disclosed after every operation. Again, Wild West shit. So, um, and, the, and the target when they were arrested was given the opportunity to have the undercover confront them. Because they'd all go bullshit and bring the undercover in and go, I knew you were a narc. Yeah, well, that's for sure you did. Um, but uh, and and the detective said to him, Do you want to you want to have a confrontation? It's not a formal one. I just want to say good day. And I walked in and I, he said, Mate, now I get it. Fuck, now I get it. I said, well, you know, I tried. He found me. He found me a couple of years later when I'd gone back to the drug squad as a detective. Left a message. Not found me. Left a message at the drug squad to have a, a catch up. And I thought, right, there's a couple of options here. Either he's going to want some payback, or um, Maybe he wants to roll over and work for me. Who the hell knows? But all it wanted was he just wanted to have a beer and say good day. And um, he took that pretty well. You know. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strangely, although I did go there with yeah. a gun and a couple of backup mates. But um, and he might have been. He might have been. But, high, uh, so. <laughs> that's right. Um, but I have got a mate in Victoria, and 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 I no, I never, no, I never never kept in those relationships. So. Um, probably because I was so fucked up with PTSD from that 89, onwards, I was really emotionally, emotionally distant a lot of the time. But um, I have a mate in Victoria in the SOG, the Special Operations Group down here, who shall remain nameless, <clears throat> but was involved in a, um, a situation some years ago. There was an armed holdup occurring. He shot, the bad guys all got killed except for one. My mate shot him. Shit shot, apparently. And um, they catch up. They catch up every six months and have a beer. <laughs> it's very cool. And they laugh about the day. Oh, remember when? Oh, we laughed and we laughed. Um, but he said, yeah, he said, they just have a chat. <laughs> there's a whole book right there, I, I reckon. There's black and white and then there's the grey area where we live. Hey? Yeah, yeah. We all just yeah. bond over, over a beer. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's, and that's what he says. He said, yeah, it's just, you know, it just happened, but, you know, he's not a bad bloke. <laughs> Good bloke, shit spot, mate. Um, so so yeah. l- learning uh, learning to, to deal with all this sort of stuff, is there stuff that you learned yourself prior to, like, tools and techniques? So, I mean, Swiss mm-hmm. 8's about learning proactive stuff to teach people these tools mm-hmm. before they have situations so that, they can identify what's going on so that they can maybe learn to live yep. a life that's okay. I mean, it's different if you have to be a, 
are fucking undercover and you whatever it is but is there things that mm. you have learned that has helped you perform better or you know that these are the things to do yeah like sleep etc mate number one talk to your mates and talk to people number one if if i'd had the opportunity to talk openly back in that those days i would have recovered a lot earlier than i did um the culture was just to shut well, the culture was to shut up but it, but it was because no one really knew how to handle it so talk to your mates talk to every chance i get on every and i've done a number of podcasts as, as you know every chance i get i say anybody who's listening to this out there who's who's got issues you're not by yourself you're not alone at all talk to your mates Find me through social media, and I've had some people do that, which is pretty damn cool. And um, and and the second is, for me, be kind to yourself. Yeah, you, you're actually you have an injury. It's not a it's not a mental disorder, even though it's called disorder. It's more for me, it's an injury. It's it's completely normal to react like this to stress and trauma that you've been through. You don't necessarily have to be a cop or a soldier to go through it. You can have trauma in your life that that can fuck you up. Um, so and be aware of that be kind to yourself the third thing i do mate i exercise almost every day um to get the endorphins happening i've got i went back to martial arts at the age of 53 um train in a dojo three times a week i do boxing um rounds you know every every other day um i go for a run i'm not crazy obsessive although it seems like it but um but even if it's 30 minutes you know sometimes better than that but just to, to be, for me, to release those endorphins, um, I think has an incredibly powerful and positive effect. And um, using every opportunity for me to try and encourage other people to talk. So I, I, I'm at the stage now where I can sort of pick it, I reckon. You know, I get a vibe from someone and go, oh, that's not good. Um, and, and I'll do whatever I can to help them. You know, that, that for me is pay it forward. Because a lot of people have helped me um, since, I guess, the attitudes in, in society have changed about mental health. It used to be a real stigma, as you know. And now, um, you know, with everything that's happened over the last 10 and 15, or Jesus, since, since 2001, so fuck 20 years, um, one of the positives has been that, that we've been able to talk more openly. And, and also, you know, I still, I still get on the source way too much, I reckon. I still love a drink. Uh, that's it's hard for me yeah, to break yeah, that <laughs> particularly when i'm with my mates you know because because that's when we we actually and we're like I'm, I'm i'm on the wrong side of 60 um so my mates are same same or generally or somewhere in their 50s but we actually get to get to have a beer now and the first thing we do when we see each other is hug we never used to hug you'd hug you kiss your mate on the cheek and say i fucking miss your brother i love you and and all of that is incredibly powerful because as men we don't generally open our emotions up and that that's that's a problem um because you internalize it then it all just goes you know blows up one day um and either you die or or, or something you know tra other tragic things happens where you, you may take another course of action so for me it's about it's about being as authentic as you can realizing that yeah we're tough guys fuck yeah we're alpha males but we're also still human beings and and we've got an injury that's not of our making yeah and um you know People talk to me about antidepressants. I go, well, yep, yeah, hey, if you, your doctor says do it, then fucking do it. Because if you had diabetes or high blood pressure, you'd take a pill, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. Same, same, mate. 
depression is not a conscious choice. It's the fact your synapses aren't working properly. And if you get something to, to level you out so you can actually feel joy again, what's the bad thing about that? You know, so, um, yeah, that's... I answered your question a number of levels. Absolutely, there, that I? was a... We have to clip that up, mate. I think the alcohol one's a big one. Sorry. I think that's something that even even at our level, mate, when we're not we're not choir boys, as we say, absolutely not. Uh, we, yeah. we teach a, a healthy sort of lifestyles, but still human fucking beings. I still catch up with the boys. Yeah. And that you, you catch up and you have one, to, you have enough where you get the emotional juices flowing and the, and the, and the yeah. social lubricant, right? And you have a fucking laugh. Yeah. And then yeah. it's just, where do you pull it up, right? You, you know, you, yeah, that's the challenge, you know. Um, that's the challenge. It's because uh, <laughs> that last four hours between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. <laughs> go like that, don't they? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a really hard one, mate, because I, I still thrive on the camaraderie and, and I still thrive on that um, that having a beer. And I know you can have fun without it, blah, blah, but it's just it, it's probably ingrained in me by now. Um, I did drink way too much for years. I, I realised it was self-medicating, but I don't self-medicate now. I drink to enjoy it with my mates, you know. And if you get a little bit pissed, then you get a little bit pissed. Big deal. It's um, you know, you're right. You, you don't still want to be out at four a.m. staggering through the streets looking for a cab. That's where you need to press the stop button before. Mate, then. I've been trying to do the Cinderella rule for years. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get it out. Like <laughs> if it's past twelve, get in a buddy pumpkin. Because yeah, I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, well, when you can figure it out, can you can you yeah, let me we'll know? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd appreciate it. <laughs> um, but that, that's, I think that's, yeah, it's a fine line between having a good time and relying on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if if you if you you know, drinking for effect and you're drinking to sleep, then that's that's probably not a good place to be. But I sort of get it. You know. As opposed to some of the other alternatives, you're like, fuck. Well, it's a lesser of two evils, eh? Oh, yeah, exactly, mate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, I have a whole position around weed. You know, I'd like to see weed legalized because um, I never went to any domestic disputes or brawls where people were stoned. Um, and know, that's from so, experience, right? That's break, experience, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, I, I could go on about that for hours too. You know, legalize it for fuck's sake. We lost the war a long time ago. Break the back of organized crime involvement in it. Tax it control the quality and what you'll see actually is usage will go down because it loses its its outdoor image um and those people who prefer to have a spliff than um than a vodka happy days you know so i reckon i think alcohol is is probably one of the biggest problems you see uh, i've got a couple of ambo mates and, and and a couple of cop mates as well and they're like it is responding to alcohol related incidents most, yeah. like yeah alcohol and drugs but never weed generally like yeah yeah, that's exactly right. But, you know, the biggest argument you have when you're smoking weed is who's got the remote control and I want to watch this versus Pink yeah. Floyd, for fuck's sake. We watched yes. that last night. Not much of a colourful um, argument either. Because <laughs> what have they done? They've done it in that's Canberra, right. haven't they? They've done... Uh, it's legal in Canberra um, locally. State state law says that you can have it, but yeah. they're run by the feds, so it wouldn't really... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you know, any cop is not really going to worry about it, one would hope. But there are, there are, I think at the moment, twelve states in the U.S. where it's completely legal for recreational use, and I, I follow the stats a lot because um, it it really interests me. And Colorado were the first state to do it; was the first state to do it. 
And the latest stats I've seen in Colorado since they introduced legal weeds maybe five years ago or maybe more is that street violence has dropped by 47%. Hello, you know. The tax, the, the, ta they, the first year they legalised weed, they forecast a tax take of 60 million. They got it in three months. <clears throat> and then, yeah, and, and the first year, all the tax intake from weed went to health and education. The second year, it went to cops to um, fight the ice scourge. Then the third year, again, was health and education. So it just all makes sense to me, you know. Um, will you guys, your generation, hurry up and do it before I die? Because it'd just be kind of... We're getting there. We're, we're trying. No. <laughs> I mean, it is, isn't it? There's a difference between marijuana and if you have drug education, I think that's massively important. If you teach people, yeah, educate absolutely. people on drugs like alcohol, marijuana, what it does. Um, I yep. don't think I can ever yep. condone uh, ice, you know, heroin. Those things are addictive and destructive and, and destroy lives. That's right. And that's some... I've seen too many people go yeah sorry to interrupt mate it's in too many lives ruined by all that shit um but you know but talk to the cops that know mate hey eh? that's exactly right mate yeah yeah and i think the average cop would go absolutely legalize it so i can get on with my job yeah. you know rather than worry about someone having a spliff in the street whatever so do you um uh do you have much to do with uh so peter dutton's swapped across uh currently to the defense yeah Minister. yeah um, we, had a, yeah. we had a beer and a barbecue with him when we were down in Canberra for the barbecue to remember. Um, oh, cool. What do you reckon? Yep. What do you think? What do you think of old, old, old Dutz? Dutto, I, um, I knew him when he was uh, I knew him when he was in the drug squad. He's, um, it's a shame we didn't know each other because if you'd said Banksy said good day, he'd go, shit, how do you know Banksy? Um, yeah, he's he's a good guy. He gets bad press. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the, the 24-hour fucking news cycle now is if you don't look like Robert Redford or Brad Pitt or whatever, the media focuses on your head. So, you know, he gets all the, uh, and look, nice guy, but not very photogenic. That's what he said. Um, <laughs> Mate, I, I hit him up, we um, had a beer, and I said, oh, how do you like being the second most hated bloke in Australia? And he's like, second? I'm f first, mate, <laughs> like he was the Home Affairs Minister or whatever it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I, mate, I, well, because I personally know him, so I can't be objective, but I know that he's a genuine bloke. He's just a genuine bloke. And, and the media in this country love to tear people to pieces, as you know. And, uh, and it's almost as if they just don't give him a break because he's done it. Hey, deports, uh, deports people from the country who are organized crooks will get my vote every day of the week. But, you know, and, and I just hope the silent majority understand that. But um, if you ever run into him again, mate, Joe, give him well, my regards because I haven't I'm seen him for a while. I'm catching up with him this afternoon. We're going to have a beer. So, was, yeah, he's Dutto. in Townsville at the moment. So by the time this comes out, ah, it's nice. not illegal to disclose his, his location. But So, yeah, we're going to catch up with ah, yeah. up here with the federal member for Townsville going out. Oh, right. Well, well, tell him Banksy yeah, said no hello. <laughs> <laughs> Good as oh, gold. Mate. All right. Well, uh, mate, we might leave it there, but uh, can you – uh, just drop your you got Instagram social media stuff uh, and then the title of your book I have Let's mate get yeah that out there so we can yeah, yeah, clip yeah. that up and get yeah. it to everybody mate oh thanks brother I'll just send it off to yeah, Anthony yeah. and then if you just want to drop it now uh, and then we can we'll just clip this out as, as a piece mate so good as gold yeah handles. cheers I've got, I've got lovely run along I've got the uh, I've got all the Instagram cool, I've got cool. all the Instagram links and stuff like that so I'll pop them up at the end on the on the screens oh so you're all over it Keegan so um Mate, uh, yeah, I, I don't use Twitter a lot for it, but the Insta stuff I do. Um, I've got a Facebook. That's wrong. Yeah, well, Facebook clearly. Uh, Drugs, guns, and lies is the Facebook site, or my Facebook is just Keith Banks. It's open. 
um, and uh, a website that I've got that's being overhauled. And well, actually, will be overhauled by the time you guys go to air. So when, when is this? A couple of weeks? Uh, Monday. This one? Oh, Monday. Ooh, nice work. All right, may not be overhauled by then, but it's it's worth throwing up there because it'll um it'll be pretty cool when it's finished in a couple of weeks. So that's just uh, www.keithbanks.com.au. I put seconds of thought into it. No, it's good. <laughs> well, it's like George. It's like a uh, um, George Armani and all those other self-titled brand names. It's Keith Banks. That's going to be the brand yeah. name. Mate. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's it. There you go. Banksy. Um, I think Banksy one seven five is my Insta, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So, um, oh mate, uh, both of mate, mate, sir. Great having a chat to you. Thank you very much. So you're in, you're in Townsville, Max. Where are you, Keegan? I'm in, I'm over in Perth. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so split up a bit. Well, good to chat mate, to you guys. We'll have to, Thank we'll you have very to get, much. We'll it's have been, to get you um, back on in the mate. future if you're ever keen to. I might try and get you back on. Oh when yeah. The book comes out or just a. To... Yeah, no, love to, mate. Yeah, because um, because look, I've got to say the second one's much darker than the first. It's I've written really openly about what we talked about this afternoon. Um, so uh, yeah, I'd love to have a mate. chat. Besides, I like uh, I like talking to uh, fellow like-minded Living people. Experience, lads, mate. <laughs> Absolutely, Cheers, got it, mate. Hey, thanks very much, brother. Good Speak to you soon. Cheers, brother. My pleasure. Take care, guys.